The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, June 25th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. If you've got your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and open them up to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6, we're spending some time this summer looking at the wisdom of God for his people through the book of Proverbs. And so this morning we'll be in chapter 6. And while you're turning there, as I was getting ready this week, I was reminded of a conference, a, a pastoral conference, where I heard one of the speakers ask those in the audience to imagine themselves living in Nazareth at the time in which Mary was carrying Jesus in her womb. All right, so go ahead and do that. I'll let you do it too. Try to imagine yourself in that time. And, and he said, imagine with that, that you, along with Mary, understood that the child in her womb was the Messiah. That the Almighty God, creator of heavens and earth, the one in whom no one could just stroll into the presence of because of his glory and holiness, had taken on bodily form and taken into the presence of this young girl. And you knew it. And he said, imagine the honor and the respect with which you give to her. The way that you would treat her, speak to her, speak of her, knowing the Almighty had taken up residence in her womb. Amazing. Which only led us to the point where he asked us why we then think it's okay to so easily gossip about one another spread half-truths about one another, nurse bitterness towards one another, disregard the impact of our words and actions on one another, speak in anger towards one another, slander one another, when we on this side of the cross cling to the near impossible reality that that same almighty God has taken up residence in each and every single one of us who has believed in his son by his spirit. We can imagine the honor with which we would treat Mary as the Almighty dwelled in her womb. Yet turn your head to your right, to your left, scan around the room. We find it so easy to speak in such ways and treat one another in such ways that ultimately disregards the presence of the Almighty in that person. The very thing we hold so tight to and affirm so clear with our mouths, we so easily disregard with the way we live. We easily pass on information about a brother or sister in Christ that we're not even sure is true, but we knew in passing it on to someone else, it would change their view of that person. We so easily embellish a story about another brother or sister in Christ. Or we take a particular tone in the telling of said story about 
another brother or sister in Christ so that the one who was listening to us would walk away with an unjustly, unfairly negative view of that person and maybe a better view of us in light of it. Not only is that painful, it's divisive, it's destructive, and it's out of step with reality. Reality according to God's world and God's rule. It quite literally is foolishness on display. And we live in a world that literally accepts such foolishness, encourages such foolishness as a way for you and I to get ahead in the life in which we're living. We live in a world that traffics in slander and gossip and anger and bitterness and destructive quarreling and fighting. As I was thinking about it, I was reminded of a story of a missionary family from the 60s, Don and Carol Richardson. You might have heard their story. Don and Carol took their seven-month-old son and moved to New Guinea at the time in the 60s where they were going to see the gospel take root amongst a tribe and a people that had never heard the gospel before. It was the Sawi people. And the Sawi people in the 60s were still a cannibalistic headhunting tribe in New Guinea. And this man and this woman and their seven-month-old moved there to see the gospel take root. And they were there. They began to be welcomed they began to tell the stories of the Bible and the gospel to this tribe. And lo and behold, they found that in this culture and in this people, what was prized amongst them for the history of their people was actually deception, deceit, treachery, lying. So as they told the stories of the gospel, do you know who the heroes were? Judas. They told the stories of the Old Testament. You know who the hero was? Jacob. They were basically taking notes in all the ways Abraham was able to lie to get himself out of situations and to make himself look a certain way in other people's eyes. Jesus was just this weak victim of people who were more deceitful, more cunning, stronger. And as they began to continue to work to try to see the gospel take root, it was just seeming to go in one ear, out the other. And three villages of the same tribe, the Sawi, who prized deceit and treachery have been practicing such deceit and treachery amongst themselves of the same tribe, and a war broke out amongst these three villages, and peace was utterly elusive, and they contemplated having to leave. And I thought about them as I thought about the world in which we live. The cannibalistic nature of the way we tend to treat each other in this world. The lack of disregard we have to one another at times in this world. The way that we can speak about one another and act towards one another today, that's not only accepted, but encouraged in the world in which we live, that we think is going to get us where it is we want to go. And we do it in the church amongst God's people, in whom the very Spirit of the Almighty dwells. And while the world in which we live accepts it and even elevates it, I think you and I all too easily forget that God hates it. That he abhors such kind of actions amongst his people. And he's got a lot of stuff to say about it. And so if you've got your Bibles open, Proverbs chapter 6, at the top of that chapter, you might have a heading that says practical warnings. That's just the translators trying to give you an idea of, of what's to come. And 
What we're going to do is spend some time in the middle of the chapter in verses 12 through 19, where God through Solomon is going to give us a very clear and practical warning about a life that is out of step with reality as God defines it. A foolish life that is destructive to relationships and destructive to the mission of God amongst his people. We're going to get a portrait. It's a warning. And like all words of God, we said last week, in particular, though, the warnings that God gives us, we should hear it as such and slow down and take it as such. It's a kindness of God to give us such a warning. It's going to come in the portrait of what's going to be called a worthless man in the ESV. Some of your translations will say troublemaker. It's another way, ultimately, of speaking of a fool. But behind the word worthless man, behind the word troublemaker, lies the Hebrew word belial, which to some of you might sound familiar because it becomes a personal name of Satan in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. That's how serious, that's the the gravity that this kind of foolishness carries. Being out of step with reality, having lacked the fear of God that brings us into appropriate affection for him and response to him, that, which is the beginning of wisdom, is absent in such fools. And and so let's just listen to the wisdom and the portrait that God gives us through Solomon and, and take time to consider what it is that it helps us see. So it starts this way in verse 12. A worthless person or a troublemaker, a fool, a a wicked man, first goes about with crooked speech. Here's the picture. He quite literally walks. And and remember, in in Proverbs and in Psalms and and really throughout the scriptures, a, a way of speaking about a person's life and how they live is talking about the path they're on or the way in which they take. The portrait that this verse is painting is a person whose life, whose steps, whose path literally is animated by deception. They walk with a crooked mouth. They can't help but spin lies with the words they say. It's instinctual for them to give half-truths and falsehoods. It's part of the way they operate to deceive those around them like their father, the serpent. This fool is always twisting the truth about themselves, about others, about their circumstances in such a way that they end up always coming out clean and looking good. It's just easy. It's just instinct. But not only that, Solomon tells us that this troublemaker winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, and points with his finger. Now, these would have been naturally understood gestures in the time in which it was written, right? The picture that's being painted is that this person's entire being, not only their mouth, but their eyes, their their hands, their feet, what they're doing is consumed by this deceit and deception. Practically, they're probably signaling to partners or friends or allies in different circumstances and situations what they're doing and how they're getting over on this person, right? Whatever it might have been very practically. But the picture is their their entire being is corrupted with such foolishness. 
They don't speak and operate plainly and simply. Right? We might say they're shifty. Right? They've, they've always got an angle in what they're doing and saying. Matthew Henry said that, that this troublemaker will, will give orders for evil doing and yet would not be thought to be doing so, but always has a way of concealing what he's doing so that he'll never be suspected for what he's done. Right? The whole person is swallowed up in this deception, right? The whole being is engaged in the work of deception. And then Solomon tells us in verse 14 that all of that is the overflow of something. With perverted heart, this person is devising evil. It's helpful to remember that in the Bible, the heart is not necessarily the biological organ that's pumping blood throughout your body. The heart, when it's spoken of in the Bible, is most often being referred to as that inner man, that part of you that is the controlling part of you, of your, your thoughts, your affections, your motives, that then give rise to the actions and the ways that you actually live. The affections and the passions that are energizing your life. The motives that are capturing the heart of this troublemaker or this fool, Solomon says, are perverse. Perverse in the sense of they're not in line with that which is healthy. They're perverse. They're twisted. They're out of step with, with that which is healthy, with that which is right. They're out of step with that which delights God and is according to his will. They're out of step with a fear of him. Their motives and affections and delights in the heart that only have eyes for themselves. That only have eyes for their wants and their desires and their ways. And therefore, in what they speak, how they speak, and how they behave, we find that they're continually sowing discord. That's what begins to happen. Their eyes out of step with reality, giving birth through their mouth to all manner of deception. Their deceptions, however innocent they may seem to them, always have consequences in the world around them. You know, you hear this and you might find yourself picturing this you know, cartoonish, devious person out there always plotting for how to hurt this person and that person and get this and got that, you know, like. It's really not like that. The troublemaker, the fool that's being pictured here, it, it's someone who's, who's born or could be born, whose besetting sin is, is deceit. That was me. I mean, from the time I was born through much of my young adulthood and only through the work of the Holy Spirit in the last 15, 20 years have I seen change in this, but it just spilled out of me. Like, I, I just lied. Even when I had no reason to lie. When I did feel like I had reason to lie, and it could have been fear, it could have been embarrassment, it could have been consequences, it could have been wanting something that I didn't think I could have had on my own, or it could have been wanting to see this person look a certain way in this person's eyes so that I would look a certain way in this person's eyes, whatever it might have been, it just came out of me. And half the time, I didn't really think it was that big of a deal. It was just instinctual. I wasn't plotting how to cause harm to a person's life through this. It was just 
It's just what happens. Out of a, a sinful heart that was devising its own wisdom and its own ways to get through life according to a picture of success and fruitfulness and vitality that I had, my heart gave birth to this kind of thing. Like Jacob, born grabbing his brother's heel, and every time he found himself in a situation, he couldn't help but try to spin the truth. He couldn't help but try to deceive his way out of it. That was me. So don't picture this cartoonish, evil person twisting his mustache, plotting these things. This, this is a heart that is corrupted with the foolishness of sin, and it gives rise to a life of deceit. I mean, you know how much of our world and culture today and the way we live traffics in deceit that we accept? I mean, the entire entertainment industry, beauty industry, longevity industry, they trade on what we've decided is acceptable deceit. All of a sudden, two weeks from now, I look 15 years younger, but I can't tell you how and why. Oh, I just stopped eating bread. Oh, really? Right? But do you know what happens? Not just in that scenario, but but in all of these deceits. You know what happens when we're spinning these webs about others, about ourselves in life this way? Whether we see it or not, the bonds of trust between people are getting eroded. The connection is being eroded. Whether you see it or not, it's happening. This deception is always sowing discord. It's always sowing destruction. And what's happening is a a failure to remember that in God's world, under God's rule, folly and foolishness like this never win. Like verse 15 reminds us, therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly, and in a moment he will be broken beyond healing. One day, the house of cards and all of our deceptions, as innocent as we think they are to ourselves, all the deceptions that have built the house of cards are going to come falling down and crashing down. All of the plates we've always had to keep spinning because of what we said here, what we've said about this person here, what we've done here, all the plates we've tried to keep spinning, eventually they're going to come crashing down. Destruction is going to come. Because this kind of foolishness is out of step with God's world. It's out of step with him and what brings real life. And so as we keep reading, Solomon doesn't move on to an entirely different set of warnings and instructions, which is what happens sometimes when we read this. No, in verses 16 through 19, Solomon is going to take us further into the mind and heart of God in relation to this kind of fool. The warning that he's given us, the picture that he's given us, and we're going to see how the warning he's given us already fits together with the mind and the heart of God with regards to this kind of foolishness. Look at what he says in verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Now that is very strong language, right? It is hard to imagine a more concrete way to express God's displeasure than the words hate and abomination. I mean, it's one thing to say that God hates something. It takes it to an entirely different level to say that it's an abomination to him. 
In fact, we miss a little something there because some of your translations capture it pretty well. But in the ESV, when it says that the seven are an abomination to him, behind the word to him in Hebrew is the language of the inner being or the soul. So some of your translations will say there are six things that God hates. Seven are an abomination to his soul, to his inner being. As though the disgust and the anger emanates from the deepest part of God with regards to these things. It's expressing a most profound dislike. That's what he's saying. There are six things that God hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And the way that Solomon is speaking here, it's a device. It's a poetic device. It's used one other time in the book of Proverbs, a couple of times in the prophets. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's a device that's intended to focus your attention as a listener or a reader onto that which is most displeasing in this situation, and it's always in this kind of device, the thing that comes last. Everything that comes before it only serves to bring insight into that which is most, in this situation, displeasing and abhorrent to the heart of God. And so if you look real quick to the end of this list in verse 19, we find that it is the one who sows discord among the brothers. That's the very thing that the mouth and the hands and the feet and the heart of the troublemaking fool in the previous verses gave rise to. Constantly sowing discord. But now he takes it a step further. What is most abhorrent to the heart of God then is the one who sows discord amongst God's people, amongst the brothers. The eyes, the tongue, the hands, as we read it, the feet, they're all going to be a part of this, just like the portrait that Solomon just gave us. And so since none of us in here are free from the presence and temptation of this kind of foolishness that marks the picture that Solomon's given us, with the time we've got left, let's listen to the six things that God hates, the seven that are an abomination to his soul, and use them as a gracious instrument of examination of our own heart. It's a warning. God is giving us a warning through Solomon in his word. We ought to take it seriously. And as we've said with the book of Proverbs, in every proverb we come across, God uses them as a gracious instrument to help us see at times by his spirit through his word what we can't see about ourselves. And so let's listen to it this morning in that manner. I'll let you hear it all together and then we'll go through it. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, and feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among the brothers. Six things that he hates and seven that are an abomination to his heart. The first thing in the list is haughty eyes. Do you know what haughty eyes are? Can you capture the picture that's being painted there? Haughty eyes are eyes that are lifted up 
The eyes of your heart are, are lifted up in such a way that you can always find yourself looking down on everyone else around you. Haughty eyes are another way of speaking about arrogance. Another way of speaking about sinful pride. The position of the eyes is often very descriptive of the posture of the heart. And so it makes sense in, in this picture that pride is going to be one of the first things that's listed here, given that underneath nearly every sin that has captured our hearts since the garden finds its root in pride. And we're reminded here that God hates prideful arrogance. Arrogance is the hallmark of fools. Harry Ironside, pastor in the early 1900s, said, Haughty eyes, this kind of arrogance, belongs not to the one who has been a learner at the feet of he who is meek and lowly in heart. One who has committed himself to apprentice to Jesus in life in such a way that we're learning continually how to organize the, our heart and our life to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, that we might be conformed into his image and likeness, to live as he has lived. One who has committed themselves to be with Jesus is not one who's often found with haughty eyes. Because humility is the hallmark of wisdom. But we get the opportunity with each of these to stop for a minute and, and consider and ask God by His Spirit to help us see what we can't see about ourselves. Ask yourself and ask Him to help you see, are your eyes haughty? Do you have bloated views of your own ability and significance? Right? Do you tend to Look down on those around you who don't seem to live according to or meet the standard that you've arbitrarily set. Six things the Lord hates, seven are an abomination to him. The next thing is a lying tongue. Pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? The crooked mouth, the lying tongue. You know, whenever you lie, do you know what you're doing? You're literally distorting reality for your own purpose. That's what a lie is. Like there's reality and there's truth. And when you lie, you are distorting that truth, that reality for your own purpose. Whatever reason it is that's motivating you to do that. That's what you're doing. You're distorting reality for your own ends. See, for you and I to, to lie, to have little to no regard for the truth in such a way that we can bend it however we want towards whatever end we want, regardless of the consequence to other people around us, we're actually demonstrating that we're comfortable living in opposition to the one who is in himself the truth. There's a writer I came across this week who said that God sees a lie not as an act of speech, but as a deadly force that goes to work in society, in homes, in relationships, and divides and destroys. Foolishness speaks in lies. Wisdom cherishes truth. But again, we're given the gracious opportunity to simply ask the Spirit of God to help us see, do I have a lying tongue? 
Do I tend to falsify facts, rearrange the truth, maintain my reputation in someone else's eyes? To diminish someone else's reputation for mine to go better? For the ends that I have for myself and the plans that I've made for myself to come into fruition in this circumstance? Six things he hates. Seven are an abomination to the Lord, including hands that shed innocent blood. Again, the the picture is fairly descriptive in itself. The implication of the statement is deeper, though. The implication and and the picture and the encompassing nature of this portrait right here is of someone who has little to zero control over their own impulses of outrage and anger such to the degree that some of the most profound acts of disregard for human life are possible. And we know on this side of the cross that it's much deeper still than just the acts of language or of our hands that come out in utter disregard for the life of another person. It, it's really the anger and the outrage itself in our heart that gives rise to such action that is so abhorrent to God. Folly, foolishness, Solomon is helping us see. It, it always ends in destruction. It destroys people. Wisdom acts to preserve. Folly looks to destroy. Disregard. Wisdom always seeks to preserve. And so again, even here, we're allowed the opportunity to consider how prone am I with my words or my actions? How prone am I to disregard others and hurt them? Right? Haughty eyes and deceptive speech, pride and deception, they go together and they always leave pain and other people in their wake. Always. Six things he hates. Seven are an abomination, including a heart that devises wicked plans. Again, the deceit, the pride, the arrogance, the disregard, they are all overflow of a heart here that's pictured as devising wicked plans. Wicked plans are simply plans that are at odds with the world that God has created according to his glory and his ways. They're just plans that we think are wise in our own eyes for our own name and our own way. In the end, according to God, they're not in step with reality and they're wicked. Again, don't picture some cartoonishly devilish person sitting on their bed writing these things out in plans. This is just the heart that is predisposed to being wise in its own eyes and building a plan and a way and a path in life for your own name, your own glory, your own kingdom, disregarding the impact that whatever you have to do to get there has on people around you. The words you say, the lies you spin, the slander you share, the gossip you harbor, the bitterness and anger that comes out, doesn't matter if I'm getting where I'm trying to go. Again, what a gracious opportunity to just ask the Spirit of God through His Word here to help us see, man, what's ruling my heart? 
whose name and whose ways and whose kingdom am I scheming in my heart to build? What's the scheming going on inside of me? Is it in step with reality as God has defined it? Wisdom is eager for that. And there are six things he hates, seven that are an abomination. And what's left if your heart is just bent on devising plans for yourself and your ways and your name so that you'll say whatever you have to say to get whatever you want. You'll disregard the people around you and the impact of the words and the actions of your life that have on them and the path that you're defining. What's left for you but to run with all you've got in the direction that you've set for yourself? Feet that just hasten to evil. Going after with all you've got the foolish plans of our arrogant and self-conceited pride. Right? The blindness of our haughty eyes, the blindness of our pride and arrogance, it leaves us with no restraint. So you just keep going. I love it. Psalm 36 has a, a portrait of this. It says it in the same way, and, 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 but a little bit different. Just listen to what it says. Psalm 36, 2 through 4 says, In his own eyes, this fool flatters himself too much to detect his own sin. Right? So his haughty eyes, his arrogance and pride have blinded him to the presence of his own pride and sin in his heart. Therefore, the words of his mouth are wicked and deceitful. He ceased to be wise and do good. Even on his bed, he plots evil. He commits himself to a sinful course and does not reject what is wrong. Nope, he just hastens in his feet towards it. Because the blindness of his heart the blind, the blind spot in his heart towards his own pride and arrogance leaves him with no hatred for his sin, no revulsion towards his sin, just an acceptance and a pursuit of it. Just excuses and rationalizations, whatever it's pointed out. Right? If I don't hate my sin, if I don't, I'm not revolt, revolted, it's like disgusted by it, if I'm not actively seeking to see it and to put it to death, what is there left for me to do but to go after it? That's what's happening. Six things he hates and seven are an abomination to him. When we get to this one, a false witness who breathes out lies. Right again. It's all spilling out of this heart that is devising plans for its own name and its own ways. So it will say what it has to say, regardless of its impact and disregard for those around it. Do you know what a false witness is? It's one who willingly distorts the truth, lies, in order to go in a particular direction or get a particular way. It's actually in this scenario, talking less about a courtroom false witness, someone who lies about what they said they saw happen, and more about a false witness who bears a lie about another person's character. About another person's reputation. It's slander, right? Unjustly devaluing another person's reputation. I sat on this one a little bit this week. I came across a writer who, who spoke about this, and he said a good name represents a person's character, which is the most valuable thing about their identity. A good name is who we are in the minds of others. And since relationships trade in the currency of trust, our reputation is a very precious asset. So whenever we handle a person's name, who they are in the minds of others, we're stewarding a treasure that belongs to them. 
If we willingly and willfully damage a person's reputation unjustly, we're stealing their good name, we're vandalizing their character. This causes very real and sometimes long-lasting damage to people because restoring a devalued name is very difficult. Yet, like we said in the beginning, we, we seem to have little to no problem doing this to brothers and sisters made in the image of God, and yet in whom the very presence of God himself dwells. And this writer went on to say that our, our freedom with such slander about one another is ultimately self-indulgent and cowardly. Right? He spoke of the cycle of this slander And he said, here's what happens. Sin seizes on a concern for or an offense we've received from another person, and it seeks to distort it into thinking evil of that person. Thinking evil of that person is assigning imagined or exaggerated negative qualities to them that don't exist. Often this begins as private fantasies where we nurture our concerns or offense by imagining ourselves justified in our righteousness and them condemned in their sin. But in truth, all we're doing is passing our own evil thoughts on to imaginations disguised as other people. That's our sin nature's slander talking, and we're fools to listen to it. And when our slander spills out from ourselves to others, it's indulgent and cowardly. Indulgent because we, often what we really want is the self-flattery of our listener approving and admiring us more than the one we're slandering. And we're willing to rob another's reputation to get the drug of self-flattery. And it's cowardly because it's a way of nurturing a concern or an offense and gaining sympathizers without doing the courageous work of bringing it directly to the source of concern. Our rationalizations for this can be countless. But essentially, we don't have the guts to deal with it. This means our character is in serious question since we're willing to vandalize another person's character to gain allies in our own slander. It's detestable to God. It's destructive, divisive to his people, which is why as he comes here to the end of Six things he hates, the seven he abhors, that which is most abhorrent, that which the others all point to and play a role in, is the sowing of discord among the brothers. The arrogance and the pride of a heart devising a life and a way that's wise according to its own eyes for its own glory and its own name and is willing to say and do whatever needs to be said and done about or towards a person who thinks that who they think might be in their way or get in their way disregarding the impact on their life their character their reputation that is an abomination to God and I spent some time yesterday reading John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer before he's going to the cross. And he's praying to the Father for his disciples, for you and I. Read it this week over and over and over again. What seems to preoccupy his mind and his heart is that you and I, that those who were with him and those who would come to know him would come to know and experience and live in the oneness and unity that he has with his Father and the Spirit that he purchased for us by his blood in a manner of ours on the cross. 
In fact, he'll, he'll say this, I'm not asking for these only, those who are with me, but for those who will believe through their word that they be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they may be in us. Why? That the world may believe that you sent me. There's something about the oneness that Jesus is willing to purchase through his blood for his people that puts on display to a watching world something of his love. Something of his significance. Something of his glory. And so he, he keeps praying. The glory you've given me that I've given to them, they may be one even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is what is the preoccupation of his heart. That we would have a oneness and a unity with one another that puts his glory on display. And we know the length to which he would go for that to happen and be a reality. He's going to lay his own body down on a cross and suffer an excruciating and a humiliating death that he did not deserve in order for that to be achieved. That our oneness together, our unity together, would put on display to a watching world his glory, his grace, his sufficiency. And we would know together the taste of that intimacy and joy that he has with his father. This is why God abhors those who sow discord amongst God's people. Why he hates it. It's why it grieves him. No wonder then that slander, gossip, arrogance, and deceit, and all the cousins of them would be Satan's chief strategies to divide and derail God's people. And as you and I listen to the warning, we've got to be reminded that the troublemaker or the fool that we have to be the most vigilant about is ourselves. We must be on guard against this sin that clings so close, so tight, and is so easily nourished and accepted in the world in which we live. Not only does he, does God hate it, is it an abomination to his soul? But like Solomon reminded us in verse 15 in the portrait of the fool, it's got consequences. Not only does it carry consequences now in the destruction of relationships, the destruction of trust, the dimming of the light of the glory of Jesus seen in his people, but a day is going to come when every single one of us will have to give an account for every careless word we've spoken, including the words we've spoken about one another. It's not just the picture and the portrait of the glory of God on display in his people's oneness that Jesus purchased on the cross for us, but it's also this reminder of his, of his coming to which we're going to give an account that motivated Peter when he wrote to the church to say, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander amongst you. They do violence to one another's reputation. And they dim the light of Christ's reflection to a broken world. They're out of step with reality. 
They're out of step with the reality of God's world as he has created it under his rule. They're out of step with a life lived for his glory and our deepest joy. We live in a culture that prizes and praises tearing other people down to get where you're trying to go. Loves quarrels, loves gossip, loves deceit, loves to posture, loves to fight, loves foolishness. Did you know that Jesus gave his disciples, you and I, his own list of seven things? Not that God hates, but seven things of vitality in his kingdom. The first wasn't haughty eyes. It was being poor in spirit. Humility. The seventh, not sowing discord, but being peacemakers. How do you and I begin to live in step with reality? How do we do it in a culture, in a world that prizes self-promotion at all costs, including the cost of unity and peace? Martin Lloyd-Jones said it best when he said, before one can be a peacemaker, one really must be delivered from self, from self-interest and self-concern. That means you and I have to be delivered from a view of ourselves and the world around us that has us at the center. We have to get a view of reality according to God's word given to us by his spirit. Lloyd-Jones says a peacemaker has only one concern, and it's the glory of God amongst men. That was Jesus' only concern. His one interest in life was not himself, but the glory of God. And the peacemaker is the man whose central concern is this glory and who spends his life trying to minister it to others. The beginning of such wisdom is the fear of God. That's what Lloyd-Jones is getting after. A new view of self and a new view of the world that is in accordance with reality as God defines it, that we've seen throughout Proverbs is what the fear of God is. Trying to live a, a Christian life without the fear of God is like trying to put a foundation on a house that's already been built. The foundation for living skillfully in God's world under his rule, according to reality, the foundation is the fear of God. All right, all of him, his world, his rule, a sense, an ever-expanding sense of reality as God defines it and ourselves in it. Living according to this is the path to joy. So where does it come from? And how does it get restored? Well, the Spirit of God cultivates in each of us an eagerness for the very things that delight God's heart. The Spirit of God is the one who gives us eyes to see reality as God defines it. It's the Spirit of God that, that gives us a delight in that reality, a cherishing of that reality, and all of Him who has created all things and rules all things and our place in His world. It's the Spirit of God that cultivates and empowers us to begin to live rightly and skillfully according to that reality. That is the path to joy. And it matters to God. 
to see and to cherish what brings peace and transforms haughty-eyed troublemakers into peacemakers. It's a gift and a work of the Spirit of God in us. Help me see. Help me see what you see that I can't see about myself. The eyes, the mouth, the tongue, the hands, the feet, the deception, the arrogance. Help me see. I need you to help me see what I'm blind to so that I can confess it and turn from it and put it to death. You know, the Richardsons, Don and Carol and and their, their son, spent years laboring there in the Sawee and no matter what they were doing, it, the penny wasn't seeming to drop, and they found themselves in the midst of massive war and division amongst a people in themselves. They didn't want to go, but peace was elusive. And as they prepared to leave, you know what happened? One day, the chieftains of each village, again, they're the same people, same tribe, so we. The three chieftains of those three villages, they gathered together. Each chieftain brought his youngest son, and each chieftain exchanged his youngest son with another chieftain and took his youngest son. And in that moment, peace between those people, the Sawi, their own kind, was declared. Richardson couldn't figure out what in the world was going on. And he asked the chieftain of the village that they had been staying in and living in over those years, what just happened? He's been laboring to teach the gospel to these people for years. And do you know what that chief said? If a man would actually give his own son to his enemies, that's a man that can be trusted. Friends, how much more so you and I, who have our creator, the almighty, who sent his own son, who did not consider his rights and riches in glory, but humbled himself, laying aside all of it, to take on the form of a human, being born into this world, shattered by sin, so that by him, God would reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through the blood of his cross. Our peace with God and the transforming power to turn our haughty hearts into peacemaking hearts is found in Jesus, the wisdom of God, who made a way for the love of God to satisfy the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God by exchanging the Son of God for us. You can trust Him to define for you what reality really is, what reality for your joy and your vitality and your thriving looks like, and to define what unity amongst his people looks like and how it's accomplished through the exchange of his son for our sin. You can trust that his wisdom for your joy is not found in haughty, self-conceited plans, not found in the continual spinning of deception and lies. It's not found in diminishing others to exalt yourself. It's found in humility born from seeing him and his rule and living for his glory and the good of others before yourself. And you can trust him. You see, humble, truth-cherishing, people-building peacemakers who are learning to live increasingly day by day for the glory of God in a culture that prizes self-glory.
and self-conceit and self-advancement at any cost. It's possible. And it's what God is doing in those who are eager to live according to reality as he defines it. And so this morning, we're going to respond to God's word together. We're first going to give you a moment to just consider his word, his warning for your heart, for your soul, and how he might be calling you to respond to it. But then, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to be invited to come forward. And when you come forward to receive communion, you're going to be making an actual proclamation and declaration in your act. You are declaring that God, by the exchange of his son in our place for our sin, has created in his people a oneness and a unity, and that his son dwells in the midst of that unity. And that our unity together is his cross becoming more real in our hearts as we deny ourselves and demote ourselves for his sake and the exaltation of his name. You are declaring and proclaiming that your unity and our unity in Jesus is not just you and I learning to be nice, but it's actually prophetic to the world around us. As one pastor said, you're going to come forward and you are going to proclaim to all the divisive and haughty and selfish passions in your heart that Jesus is Lord and they're not. That Jesus makes life sweet and they don't. That Jesus brings us together and they can't. That they have no claim on you here. That you belong to Jesus, the crucified friend of sinners. The whole world will know it by our strong and joyous unity in him. Let me pray for us and we'll have a moment to continue to respond to his word. Father, it takes a work of your Holy Spirit through your word in our hearts to give us eyes to see reality as you've defined it, not just for your glory, but for our deepest joy. And at the same time, the courage and the delight in your ways to push back and to turn away from a world in which we live that says every form of deceit, every form of treachery, every form of envy, everything is possible if it advances our name and our glory. To turn from just how tasty that may seem in the moment to a trust in reality as you have defined it, that that's reality according to what brings us our deepest joy in you, that you would help us to see it. By your spirit, you would empower us to cherish it and to turn to it. We ask that by our oneness that you have purchased for us through your son, you would make our ongoing life as your people in this city, in this place, a prophetic witness to a watching world of your beauty, of the joy in which you hold out. We ask that you would do this, not that any one of us or even the name of this church would be magnified, but that your son would be lifted up. We ask it in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org.